welcome to Plasm. This episode I'm joined with Liz. Hello. And we were, as promised in the last episode, we are visiting Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising. We're doing this partly prompted by the worldwide um, readathon that's been started on Twitter under the hashtag The Dark is Reading. In this episode, I'm going to do the synopsis, then we'll do themes and we'll get to a role-playing bit towards the end, as usual. The synopsis for those who don't know The Dark is Rising, and it's a great book, and hopefully you either have read it or you'll be encouraged to read it after this episode. Will Stanton is the seventh son of the seventh son, living in the small rural village of Huntercombe, I think is the name. I think that's right. That's right. Um, And at the time of the book, we're coming up to Will's 11th birthday, just before Christmas on the 21st of December, midwinter night. The novel spans more or less from midwinter uh, on around the 21st of December until 12th night around the uh, in the new year. Over this time, Will awakens to his supernatural identity as one of the old ones, dedicated to the light and dedicated also to oppose the dark, which is, as the title implies, on the rise. He's mentored by other old ones. Uh, there's Merriman, Merriman Leon, who is an old one and a great lord of the light, who instructs Will in his battle against the dark. There is the Lady. There's old George, who's a farmhand of one of the local farmers, but also an old one, and provides Will with a great deal of assistance. And there's also other characters such as John Whalen Smith. And there are a number of other side characters who have been touched by the supernatural, including the Walker, one of the uh, a portentous character who appears early on in the story, and the Rider, a great lord of the dark, who is the book's main antagonist. Together, the Old Ones help him awaken to his powers and also to progress his quest, which is to find six signs of iron, bronze, wood, stone, fire and water, which are required to complete a magic circle, a figurative magic circle, but there are six sigils of power, the first of which is borne by the walker and the rest that he, the rest he comes across throughout the course of the story. Now, throughout the book, we learn that the Old Ones of Light and the Rider in the Dark are beings who exist outside time. And Will has a number of experiences travelling back and forth through time as he learns about the nature of the world and his place in it. Uh, We encounter a number of different characters aligned to Light and Dark, some more powerful than others. But all of this takes place against the backdrop of a rural community and Will's family. As we mentioned, Will is the seventh son of the seventh son. He has a mother and father and he has several siblings. A large number of siblings. Well, yes, obviously being the youngest of the seventh, then there were six that preceded him. Six six boys who preceded him, there were also some girls. Seventh son means... Of course, of course, you're right. And what we generally see is what these people do over the course of the Christmas holiday where they go caroling and they um, they participate in the winter season as it as it is meaningful to them uh, enjoying Christmas Eve and Christmas Day but also doing things like burning the the new Yule log based on the ashes of the um, of the previous year's Yule log and participating in uh, in activities that 
have um, much more pre-Christian meaning. And this is a theme that is quite important to the whole of the book. Whilst whilst the whole uh, events are structured over what appears to be the holiday of Christmas as we know it, of course, all of the, all of the legend and the myth come from pre-Christian legend uh, in the idea of the wild hunt and her and the hunter and um, the symbolic battles of light against dark and um, pagan uh, festivals and uh, activities like the hunting of the wren and various other various other things that go on and some of these have meaning to the old ones and some of these have meaning to the humans and Will actually straddles two different worlds in this case, although towards the end, well, he he moves towards one, uh, I would say more like one homogenized character who is a, an 11 year old boy who is now at ease with his old one self. But throughout the course of the, uh, the book, he is pulled this way and that between uh, his family and what he expects Christmas to be as a boy and the magical adventure that he's going on the story's arc is fairly predictable and the sequel finds the ones the the signs one after the other in one form or another but it's the mythical properties of the story that make the book compelling Uh, as well as the archetypal struggle of light against dark we also see the folding in of uh, british myth with the pagan and arthurian legends and these aforementioned um uh, rituals and of, of uh, pagan and pre-Christian significance. I think the only other thing I'd like to notice is it's worth noting that uh, The Dark is Rising forms part of The Dark is Rising sequence, which is a, a title that's been attached after their publication. The first in the sequence is Over Sea and Under Stone and features a completely different set of protagonists. Will Stanton does appear again in later uh, in later books and indeed is um, united with the characters from the first book but the dark is rising to stand on its own as a as a standalone tale which doesn't actually require you to have read the other ones and it's it's got a very satisfying ending that fits very well i think that's all i've got to say about the synopsis Liz, do you want to talk about the themes yeah, I'd just like to add something quickly to the synopsis before we move on to things, which I suppose touches on themes sure. from my point of view, if nothing else, um, which is something that I found a bit disappointing in the book, which I otherwise really enjoyed, which is that almost all of the characters who do anything meaningful are boys or men. Um, there are a few female characters, and in, I think, every case, they are either evil or in some way... Um, sacrificed to the battle so two of the female members of Will's family his mother and one of his sisters are directly threatened by the dark as a means of trying to get Will to do what they want and the only well no there are two female old ones that we meet um, but the one who is the most active in the plot the lady um effectively sacrifices herself early on by spending too much of her power and uh, therefore disappears from the plot for large spans of time. Um, And the other, Miss Greythorn, is mostly inactive. Uh, All she does is host people. She doesn't actually use her power in a way that the the male old ones do. So I I find that distribution of labour between male and female characters to be quite jarring. It's 
perhaps the only duff note in the book for me. Mm. It is true that the uh, the female character. So so I think maybe to go on from that, when Will is uh, Will is battling the dark, one of the things that the dark could use against him, if it's not strong enough to actually harm him directly, is affect the people around him that he loves, and it's the female characters who are vulnerable. And it's almost like the male characters are explicitly not vulnerable. Yes, there's that striking point towards the end where Will goes off um, into what is effectively um, a dangerously rising. Is it a flood at that point? Yeah. Or is it still the blizzard? Yeah, but no, no, it's. Um, oh, I can't remember. No, uh, I think it the, might still be the blizzard, but, but yeah. Uh, there is. There is a serious blizzard through the first half of the book, which at the end of the book transforms into a serious flood. Um, so this happens somewhere around the, the the point where the one turns into the other. Will goes off into the um, harsh and dangerous weather that's um, happening outside um, in pursuit of something. One of his brothers goes with him and very quickly gets lost and is wandering around this dangerous landscape on his own. Um, one of his sisters also goes out on her own. So we have three of the Stanton children wandering around on their own in this dangerous landscape. Will is safe, of course, because he's an old one and the protagonist. Um, the brother is later just found completely safely. The sister, however, is caught by the dark and threatened by them and used as a bargaining chip to try and get Will to do what he wants. Will has a completely different emotional response to sort of whether it's his brother or sister who are under threat because when when he can't find his brother, he he basically says, oh, it's, it's probably best that Paul isn't with me right now because, you know, I'm doing magical stuff. Um, he has no such concerns about... Um, he has a completely different attitude to Mary mm. uh, and that, you know, sees her as someone who is vulnerable and needs to be protected, despite being his elder. Which is actually interesting as a contrast with The Box of Delights, which... I'm sure we'll get on to this, that there are many similarities between the two books. But contrast the treatment of Mary when she goes off on her own in The Dark is Rising with the treatment of Mariah when she's squabbled in The Box of Delights. And if one says, oh, Mariah will be fine, she's got a pistol, she can look after herself. Mm. And Mariah's a lot younger than Mary. Anyway, sorry, I just wanted to talk about that quickly before moving on to themes, although I suppose that is, in a sense, well, no, no, I, I th- I think part that, of the theme. Well, I think that, that counts, and you've already made that contrast between... Um, the, the the gender balance. So why don't we talk more about the similarities with the Box of Delights? Well, one of them which I think is sort of coming at that similarity from a slightly tangential angle, uh, but one of the things that I find most interesting about The Dark is Rising, which you mentioned in the synopsis, is the way that throughout the book Will has this tension between himself as a powerful and knowledgeable old one and himself as an 11-year-old boy, the youngest son of a large and loving sort of family that there are various points that he finds himself speaking as one or the other and explicitly notices this uh, in his own in what we get of his own internal monologue Um, so he's I suppose what he's doing is dealing with the issue for powerful child protagonists throughout a lot of kids' fiction of this era. I think it's perhaps less true of later YA fiction, um, but it's something that we also see in The Box of Delights. In fact, we talked about it a bit, the way that the action of The Box of Delights shuffles between the 
dealing with the threat that's at hand and the having the ordinary Christmas activities that are going on. The Box of Delights, I think, is less self-aware about the tension between those two. But in both books, there's very much a back and forth between the protagonist as someone who has the power to protect the people he loves against the dark and the protagonist as just a little kid who's having fun with his family and friends. Yeah, I think interestingly, something like Harry Potter doesn't have that. I mean, um, Harry is excused having um, concerns in the muggle world by basically having... By how awful the Dursleys are. Exactly, having having a, a family who doesn't care about him and who he has no obligation to care about. But um, you compare that with uh, both the Box of Delights and The Dark is Rising. Here you have basically a... Everyone in The Dark is Rising is a muggle, muggle apart from the old ones. Yeah, well, I, I think it's, it's... Yes, they are muggles. I think it's more that they are valued and loved yeah. characters because... Um, Harry Potter isn't short of people who love and value him, but uh, and form his de facto family. It's just his that family is in on the uh, is in on the secret. They're also wizards. In this case, you have a bunch of characters who are pretty ignorant, but that's that's hardly that's hardly important. If yeah, and it's interesting how that ignorance works, doesn't, isn't it? Because we get the letter from Stephen when Stephen's the eldest brother, the eldest surviving brother who's away in the Navy. And he sends Will a peculiar combined Christmas and birthday present, which he has been given by some random dude in the street in the West Indies who walks up to him and says, oh, hello, you're Stephen Stanton. Here is a present for your little brother, Will. And Stephen says, um, I don't know how you know that, but sure, OK, I'm going to post this to Will in England. And ah, he does. Ah, they all have the look, you see. <laughs> Apparently so. The Stanton look, I think they call it. <laughs> but yeah, there are points that Will talks either to himself or to some of the other old ones about the necessity of not sharing what's going on with the rest of his family. And there's one point towards the end where he thinks if he was going to tell any of them, it would be Paul, who is the brother who goes missing in the snow. Uh, but he decides that even Paul can't be told, that it's just safer for them not to know. Uh, secret identity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so other other similarities with the Box of Delights, I th- sort of think I'll list off the obvious ones. You've got a young protagonist in a rural... Uh, a young male protagonist. Yeah, a young male protagonist in a rural setting at winter where there is the threat of bad weather um, preventing people moving about. That's all, And that's something that just happens at the end of the Box of Delights, whereas it's actually an ever-present threat throughout this story and I prefer I much prefer it for that one because mm. it gives you the whole cut off from uh, cut off from society isolated survival horror type uh, <laughs> yeah. aspect but you do have that sort of very similar themes of isolation small communities and the need to survive and not having anyone else to rely on although in this case for different reasons but of course will has less autonomy and more responsibility towards the people in his care. He can't, he can't just go off and have adventures. Will has very little autonomy, whereas Kay has loads. Exactly, yes. Kay does what he pleases and he makes his own plans for how to deal with threats that are facing him, more or less. Whereas yeah. Will is basically led around by the hand through the plot. He's led around by, uh, through, by the hand... Um, 
by the old ones yeah. who say, go over here and get this sign, go over here and get this sign. And, and occasionally a sign just pops up in front of him and says, hi, collect me now. And he goes, oh, you're a sign, I'll pick you up then. That is basically it. It's a series of set pieces. There is very little agency that he has. About the most agency he displays is cajoling his family to let him go out. And and doing that sort of things and and, and, uh, going out on his own and encountering the landscape and uh, seeing the walker and and, um, some of his early encounters with Waylon the Smith, etc. There's also the movement between times that happens in both books. The, The protagonist moves out of his own time and appears in an earlier one to... Um, to find out something or to meet somebody important or just to see an alternative version of what's going on. Hmm. The other thing that I want to talk about that's that's similar, structurally similar, is how it all kicks off. There's a chance encounter with a mysterious figure. It's Raymond Lully in The Box of Delights. It's the walker in this one. And um, and also Merriman and the old the other old ones. And encounter with strange in 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 the case of uh, an encounter in the case of the dark is rising with the rooks behaving oddly but of course we have the encounter with the curates one of whom is a fox in the box of delights so this whole idea about um animals awakening as well is is actually present um there is more direct confrontation between Will and the forces that he's battling. I don't think that Kay... Does Kay actually directly confront his nemesis at all? No, I don't think he does. No. Um, but here, of course, we have Will directly confronting the rider at several points. Um, the rider being an elemental force like him. And, and certainly at the points where there is danger he is in some cases the only person who can uh, stand up to the rider because the other people around him are mortal there's also of course the transforming landscape and that was one of the things i found interesting reading the dark is rising this time because the thing i most clearly remembered from my previous read which was a few years ago and this is only the second time i've read the book the thing i most clearly remembered from the first time i read it was the flood but actually the flood is a very small thing at the end and what mostly happens throughout the book is that the landscape is transformed by the snow by these huge blizzards that physically transform the landscape such that there are points that characters get lost because the snow has obscured uh, landmarks that they recognize Uh, but also the way that the landscape changes through time uh, comes into it as well so there's a point where will goes off into the snowy landscape and finds himself in the same land but in the past and of course Kay does the same thing with arthur's camp i was thinking exactly the same thing at that point you know there's um there's actually a bibliography Sorry, uh, yeah, there's actually a bibliography in the back of the edition that we've got on the ebook version, mm. and uh, John Macefield is name checked. Of course, uh, of course, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is written what forty years later than the Box of Delights. Pretty much, yes, yeah. yeah. So early mid seventies, some sometime around then, I think. So there's another thing that I think is int- uh, an interesting thing, which is it doesn't happen. Um, it only happens early on. But it's the foreshadowing of the seeking with 
the poem about the six signs, mm. which, of course, is repeated later on. And this idea that there are six signs and they are of different elements. There's the iron, the bronze, the wood, um, stone, fire and water. That, more than anything else, gives, you know, gives me a strong sense of the mythic. Uh, it, and it's, it's used in other books to great effect one of the things i was thinking was the apulsan trilogy which of course uh, has that rhyme about the nine bright mm. shiners yes of course and it's uh, such a an interesting way to hang the world building that doesn't actually give much away about the plot or the world but it does involve the character directly in what's to come and and the myth so um now of course, there's nothing worse than bad poetry in fiction, so <laughs> I'm not sure that I would uh, I'd recommend um, if you're writing your role playing game for Christmas or indeed any time. Um, if you can string a rhyme together, then by all means go for it. Um, I personally wouldn't attempt it, <laughs> but uh, I do think I, I I do think that that is that was a, a nice thing because it uh, kind of sets the expectation that the reader is going to have about how the story is going to progress. A couple of the things I wanted to just quickly mention, um, things that exist outside town, very sapphire and steel. <laughs> yes. And actually, you know, pretty much contemporary with sapphire and steel as well. Um, the other thing that I think is very important, particularly because Susan Cooper's Dark is Rising is one of the influences for Beyond the Wall, the other two being... Um, Ursula Gwyn's Earthsea and Lord Alexander's Prydain are the mention of the true names of things and the importance mm. of uh, true names and that's actually something that has been uh, put written directly into Beyond the Wall which uh, again I'm a big fan so and I recommend you seek it out. So now I'm just completely imagining the whole book with Steel as Merriman and Sapphire as the lady and rewriting it all in my head that way. That that would probably work that way, because what happens is Steel just orders Sapphire around all the time, and, yeah. and Sapphire just... Merriman's a bit more cheerful than Steel. Um, Merriman's a lot more cheerful than Steel. They see, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe Sapphire should be Miss Graythorn instead, because of being more present and friendly and interested in people, rather than a bit distant. It doesn't quite fit, though, because, of course, Sapphire is the one who actually gets things done. <laughs> yes, that's true. And it still just glows at at stuff. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't really work that way. Oh, well, maybe we should gender swap them as well, then. Why not? Yeah. Sapphire as Merriman. Steel as the lady. Yeah. That would that, that works. Would, that would work, okay. okay. Lady more or less does just glower at stuff. Yeah, that, that would be all right. Okay. So, on to the role-playing? Yes, sure. Well, I have an idea. Okay. First of all, relating back to what we said in the Box of Delights, where my idea wasn't particularly well formed, um, I want to go back to that idea with the running a game with a Christmas theme and uh, noting that also that um, Cooper deliberately set all of the four books in um, at points in the pre-Christmas, pre-Christian calendar of the, or the pagan calendar for specific festivals at that time. Um, now, the book, I think we agree, is heavily railroaded. That's yeah. Basically, uh, and I wouldn't really run a role-playing game like that. So I was thinking, if I wanted to directly use the structure, and including sort of being 
uh, awakening to powers and being shut in to uh, to a village and being in touch with magical forces and also with a group of players rather than just one what i'd really want to do is present the plot with the set pieces and the need to seek out the six signs and that but then give the players an option to choose light or dark and also to choose whether they want to be an old one or a human and whether nice. choose the balance between those two in order to do that so so it will be quite easy for a player to be quite passive and just sort of move from set piece one after the other and then just oh yes we found this we found the the um the next sign now we have another magical battle with a rider uh and then we go on to a domestic scene but what happens is really where we're looking to go to set piece after set piece to do with the the magical bit i think you'd need to show the positives and the negatives and there are um, implied negatives to do associated with the light suggesting that they're every bit as manipulative as the dark mm. um, and and this is this is the thing it's it's sort of this is a piece of pro-light propaganda but <laughs> you know I, I I'm the thing I'm thinking more more than anything else is volons and shadows <laughs> you know Neither the the Vorlons and the Shadows exist to manipulate lesser races. And bear in mind that these characters who are lords of light, these old ones, they are not the people in charge. Their masters are the light, which is not particularly well defined. And and the lords of dark are whom the, the rider serves. So there is a hierarchy that's above all of this and we really just have yes they are supernatural beings but they also have they're effectively people who've chosen to walk a particular path and i think playing with that would be the most interesting thing so what i would like to do would be to encourage the players to make their own choice about which side to be on and of course then give them the option to screw up what happens if half of the signs actually ended up in the side of the dark <laughs> you know what what would happen then how how would they would they end up you know dividing up the landscape so it needs to be an ensemble cast and we also we've got this the this plot of a character being predestined to be an old one mm. but you can't it wouldn't make sense just to have the whole stanton family all of them awakening to be old ones and then being the sort of incredible style super team of, of uh, <laughs> although that might also be fun well it might also be fun but what i was thinking of instead is that they all get they all suddenly become the supernatural characters by accident so i ran a game called Morville years ago where the idea was an alien spacecraft crashed into a rural community and essentially gave a group of characters superpowers and it was their choice about whether they used those superpowers or not but of course then they they also had the choice between do I want a mundane life and and to uh, go to high school and, and live with my parents or do I want to be a superhero so there's all that in this case i think something that might be more appropriate is what if you had a bunch of characters exploring a long barrow that had never been encountered before mm. it would be very um very power rangers because of course in the <laughs> new power ranger movie they um they all drop into a pit in the earth after a party and then they all touch this this glowing rock and then i'll give them powers i think that's also the plot of um the found footage superhero 
Yeah, that's what I thought you were describing then. I can't remember what it's called, though. Well, it's definitely in the Power Rangers thing, but, okay. but of course, the... the, the um, oh, I can't remember what that one, what, what that film is. Anyway. We can look it up and put it in show notes. Great film. Um, but but that's basically where I'd like where I'd like to go is like you have a bunch of characters all at once, each of them being given the potential to be an old one. Then you have them play through the game and they all make their choices. And the idea is you only can have one at the end. So only one of them can be an old one who is a servant of the light. And it would be a little bit like the Hunger Games <laughs> where they um they basically all have to go through, they make their choices, and I imagine that some would fall by the wayside because they actually value their family rather than their supernatural identity. Some would actually want to be on the side of the dark instead of the light. That would all work. And at the end, you know, there can be only one who's like the the, the old one of light. So that's the sort of thing I was thinking, a sort of mash up the dark is rising with the Hunger Games. <laughs> sort of. A bit like that. With the touch of Highlander. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that, yeah, <laughs> that would work. Uh, with decapitation. Of course. Yeah. Um, your idea? So my idea is um, taking a completely different route from that um, and is basically ditching all of the supernatural stuff entirely and thinking about the aspect of it being a small, close-knit rural community stuck in a snowdrift over a period of time where they can't get out of the village and they're... Um, left managing with whatever they've got and um, reshaping their community as they go along and maybe because I'm so excited to have finally received the um, PDF of dialect which I've been eagerly awaiting for months um, I think a game of dialect could work with this Uh, so dialect is about the language that develops in an isolated community of some sort and it's about what happens to the language as the Um, isolated community progresses and then um, potentially what happens at the end as well when the isolation of the community ends um, either through choice or through something some kind of external factor Um, this obviously being snowed into a rural community is something that happens over quite a short period of time so it might take a bit of hacking but I think the the way that the community works within that period of isolation is really interesting and it's interesting ways that are um, more or less unconnected with the supernatural plot that has caused that blizzard and that isolation. So this would what be how the characters respond to their isolation and who they interact with. Yeah, and how they develop, um, dialect being a game about language, how they develop kind of in-group language that comes out of that shared experience of isolation. Hmm. That would be cool. Yeah. And if we're, if we're talking about... Uh, the only other thing I wanted to say was if we're talking about games that we've recently received. <laughs> yes, I ha- finally have my hard copy of A Las Vegas by James Wallace. This is something I've been looking forward to since 2013. Um... Okay, so it's a little bit late. I think it's fantastic. And specifically for this, if I were going to pick a system in which to run all of this, and and maybe not what I've just described, but maybe something similar, I've long thought that the Fugue system, which is what powers the Las Vegas, has a lot of potential in it. Um, 
just if you don't know what it's about, it's basically, and, and this is the Fugue system as opposed to specifically our Las Vegas, although the two are related, uh, the Fugue is all about starting to play characters with no memory. And it has a mechanism for flashbacks where on the drawing of cards you have uh, different characters, um, their, their past experiences being, uh, scenes being narrated, so they awaken to what is what their current state and remember something about their past and the, so the first thing i was thinking of it you could use that sort of mechanism for something like this where you had a bunch of old ones awakening to their full mm. magical potential when nice. previously they've been slumbering okay so slightly different but it's this this whole theme of awakening now the other thing i wanted to talk about which is even more interesting is that in addition to the Las Vegas scenario itself, there are a number of other scenarios, one of which is Yet Already by Gareth Heinerhan. And the idea about that one, Las Vegas is supposed to have a rotating GM or dealer, where and, and even to the point that uh, the first dealer will know how the first act works, but won't have a clue about how the later acts are supposed to play out. In Yet Already... Each of the separate GMs will be responsible for a separate timeline. I've no idea how these these things are supposed to interact, but it's just a brilliant idea that uh, you have a separate. You're responsible for a separate timeline, which means that you have a totally different perspective on a shared set of events. So I was wondering if you want to run a game with a number of different old ones who have a different perspective on the struggle between light and dark, for example, then partitioning that information in that way could be interesting and having each of the uh, each of the players being a GM putting forward that particular those particular themes in their act could be a really interesting way. And the, the other thing about this is these are usually four act structures. Um, so in this case, of course, we have a, a set period of time. Mm. But if you want to take the idea of um, Susan Cooper about setting it at key points in the calendar, why not do all four seasons? Yep. So that that is the other idea I had. I mean, I've had the idea for a Dark is Rising-like feud game for ages. It was called Deep Season. And I actually wrote a totally different one using that title. I think I'll have to... <laughs> I'll have think I'll have to find a different title for it, but I think it could work really, really well and could be exciting to uh, to play it out. Ooh. Okay, last words about Dark is Rising. Um, I'm just really sorry that I didn't read this when I was a kid because I've read it twice now as an adult and I really like it, but I'd have adored it as a kid. I didn't read it until I was quite I, I was older. I've been aware of it for a while, and it's. The, the hard copy we have has got a very evocative color, cover that's really quite scary, and it's a picture of the rider. Mm. No, uh, it's a picture of Hearn. It's a picture of Hearn, sorry. Yeah, it's a picture of Hearn looking really frightening. Yeah. And it's like, um, and I remember when I was a kid before I'd read it, sort of seeing this book and thinking, oh my God, what's this? This looks horrific and frightening. And, and in some ways it is. I mean, there are there's so things that could have got so much worse yeah. than than they actually were presented in the book. Um, so playing with those themes about things like the wild hunt, which we haven't really talked about the no, wild hunt no, and all haven't. the all the elemental horrors and the way that humans are betrayed by these elemental forces and that sort of thing. I think there's a, there's there's maybe even more to talk about that way. Oh yeah, definitely. All right. Okay. 
then I think we're done for this episode. I think so. All right. Thank you for listening. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2018. Bye.